Turn with me over to the book of John. We're going to continue our series on the Spirit-filled life. We will conclude it next week, uh, talking about what the baptism in the Holy Spirit is. But today we're going to continue with how God has introduced His Spirit to different people or groups of people in different eras and times. This encounter happens to be Christ coming on the day of his resurrection to the disciples. The title of the message is The Spirit-Filled Life, The Breath of God. The Spirit-Filled Life, The Breath of God. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. So when it was evening on the on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Lord, help as we study. There are four points I'd like to concentrate on. One, the doors that were shut. Two, the dynamic entrance that Christ made. Three, the demonstration of his of his bodily resurrection, and for the deployment of the disciples. Background is this is the day that Christ rose, and it is a momentous day. It's a full day. Nobody had ever done what Jesus had done. Now people had been raised from the dead. Jesus raised at least two. We know of the widow in Nain that was involved in a funeral procession for her only son. And Jesus stopped the funeral procession and opened up the hearse and said, boy, get up. We know of Jairus' daughter who had died. And Jesus went and raised her from the dead. We know of Lazarus. So we know of two or three, but I imagine there were many more. We just don't have the account. We also have Old Testament references where Elijah and Elisha both saw people raised from the dead in their ministry. And there's, there's, no, there's no way to try, to try to quantify which miracle is the greatest. It's hard to do because all miracles are supernaturally attended by God. And it takes no more effort for him to lengthen the leg as it does for him to raise the dead. That's our God. He does, when he expends energy to do something, he doesn't lose the energy he expended. That's, that's the distinctive between him and us. We get tired. He never does. But this, this resurrection was different. Because every other resurrection, every other person that had gone into the grave and then come back had an agency of the Father utilize his faith in order to rise that person, raise that person from the dead. But Jesus just by himself said, no death, I'm done. Well, 
I'm getting up today. That, nobody had ever done that before because everybody who died, even though their death was untoward and they may not have deserved the circumstances surrounding their death, they deserved to die at some point. So the death may have been premature in that it was violent or caused by circumstances that they could not do anything about, but at some point they were still going to pass. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, and everybody had sinned, so everybody deserved to die. But Jesus was distinct in that he had lived life, being tempted in every way just as we are, it says in Hebrews, yet without sin. So because he had never sinned, when death came to take him, it could not hold on to him because it had no right. So his body expired, but his spirit was still alive, and as a result of his spirit being alive, he was able to extend life to his body. Now, I don't know what it meant for his body to, to respond like that. It just, it, he, it, the, the, the difference between a resurrected body and a natural body is, is, fun, is beyond explanation. Because when I, go, when I exit the sanctuary, I need somebody to open doors for me. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not so prima donna-ish that I need somebody to open doors for me. I need to open them, or somebody does. I can't walk through them. Something separates me from being able to get through to the foyer without the door being opened. There's nothing about this, this corporeal body that can extend itself through matter. But something happened to the body of Christ that didn't happen to the widow's son, that did not happen to Jairus' daughter, and didn't happen to Lazarus. This resurrected body was able to pop through walls. Nothing of the temporal was, was a barrier to the eternal. Hmm. Different was this resurrection. And the disciples, they had some problems. Because, see, when somebody died, they usually stayed dead. And, and, and the one who could have raised Jesus from the dead was Jesus. And they'd never seen anybody raise themselves from the dead, so they were distraught. And they knew they didn't have the faith because they were running away from everything. Running away from the Jews, running away from their calling, running away from everything. When I say running away from the Jews, the people that killed Jesus not wanting to kill them, and so they were doing everything they could just to stay alive. Thus they were shut up in a room. It says the door was shut. Well, it means locked. Barricaded. <laughs> Barred. They were making sure that nothing that shouldn't be in there, people that wanted to get them who had already gotten Jesus, could get in. And so they, they were afraid. You see, they had given up everything. And they were already fully identified as being with Jesus. It's not like they were on the outskirts. It's not like they, they were just attendees to some of his sermons. And they could distance themselves anytime they wanted. They fully identified with this guy. And they had no idea that he would be considered a criminal. And thus killed by Rome and the Jewish nation. Though he had done nothing wrong. They considered him a criminal, and thereby they were the accomplices to whatever crime Jesus committed. And so they were looking for them. They were scared. They didn't know where to go. You, you, you say to yourself, well, why did they stay in Jerusalem? Where were they going to go? 
Somebody had revoked their passports. As soon as they crossed the border and, oh, we, we know who you are. Came right up, Miss Green. Came right up, yeah, with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They couldn't go back to, to Galilee. Everybody knew who they were. If anybody knew who they were best, it would be the people from Galilee because these were Jesus' homeboys. So where were they going to go? They just thought, let's just hold up here until things pass and, and maybe we can just order Chick-fil-A and, you know, deliver. <laughs> but then the women come back from the tomb. Say, we've seen the Lord. We've seen him. He's alive. And they dismiss it. See, there's something about you being shut up. I'm not talking about your inability to speak, but you shut yourself in. You lock the door of your soul to the possibilities of what God might do. And these people had locked fear on the inside and did not let faith come out. Faith was outside. It wouldn't come in. They locked fear in. Everything about their life, they had, they had lost all their purpose. They had lost all their identity. In one day, they had become people, or maybe three, they had become people who were excited about the possibility of being a part of Jesus' cabinet. He was the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey. And everybody was saying, Hosanna, save us now. Do something. Deliver us from this political oppression. Deal with Pilate. Pontius Pilate, deal with Herod. Deal with the religious system and let us have a job. We've been with you the longest. We are the most faithful. And I know you're going to, do, you're going to appoint us. Do this for us. And, and little by little, they began to see their dream erode. And, and I, they, they thought, surely when he appears before Pilate, he's going to tell Pilate who he is and things are going to change and a revolution is going to begin. Something's going to, and nothing happened. And then they saw him go to the crowd. They said, this can't be happening. This, this, this is not what I signed up for. Remember, they were not looking to be ministers. We have contextualized them as ministers because that's how we know them last. Jesus commissioned them. But they were looking to be administrators of a kingdom. That's why they signed up. And so when they saw their, their, their candidate die, what did I give my life for? Why am I here? I, I could have I loved him from a distance. I, I, didn't, I didn't have to, to give up my job. I, I didn't have to. What did all that mean? And so they were, they were dwelling in their misery together. And then the women come and they say he's alive. And they had shut faith out to such a degree that they couldn't even hear them. Even though Jesus had told them. Now, now Jesus will give you clues. Now, every once in a while, he'll surprise you, but it's, it's rare that he surprises you. And when he does surprise you, it's usually because you ignored what he was trying to say before. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you are surprised, but it wasn't his plan to surprise you. You just didn't get it. And so he told him, he said, hey, I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priest, and they're going to do some bad stuff to me, and then I'm going to be killed, and I'll rise on the third day. And what did Peter say to that in Matthew 16? May it never be. 
you don't, you don't understand. This is good. This is going to help you. He told the religious leaders, in three days, I'll rise after you destroy this temple. He was trying to give them information. Even at the very end, he was letting them know, I'm coming back. The Last Supper, if you look from John 17 all the way through John 19, everything was about who he was going to be beyond the grave. But they did not get it. And so the women come back and say, he's risen. And, 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 and they say, oh, you just women. That's really bad. Just horrible. God is trying to give you an opportunity to believe by faith that what he said was true. And you're going to dismiss it because of the source? Now, the source was innately credible. Nothing wrong with the source. It's what they thought about the source that's wrong. They're just women. They don't really hear things well. They don't see things well. They had this corporate delusion. You, you need to live your life in such a way as that later, after Jesus blesses you, he won't rebuke you. We see in the corresponding Gospels. In fact, in John, later it says, after he got them together, he rebuked them for not believing Mary, Mary, Mary. And for not believing the fellows that Jesus walked with on the road to him, he rebuked him. I don't, I don't, I just, I just want his, I want his blessing. I don't want his, I don't want his reproof. I'm not trying to live in such a way as I have that. And, and he gets, he can get offended at stuff that you think is okay. Because our standard is so low about what obedience should be. Compliance is, is way down here when God wants us to live up here. Now, Job. Job is one of the finest men who has ever lived. He lived between the time of Noah and Abraham. And we don't have any record of the time period and what happened during those years. We just have Job, the book. But I, he had no Bible. He had no Bible. He had no believers who fellowshiped with him on, on a common peer level. He had no pastor. He, he had no reference point other than his constant communion with the Father. He, he didn't even know God's name. God did not reveal his name until Moses, which would be almost like 2,500 years later. He was just worshiping the true and living God. And when he, when he went through difficulty, he said, the Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the, blessed be, blessed be the name of the Lord. When we go through difficulty, Lord, you gave, you can't take. No, 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 no. This isn't how God blesses. This isn't how God treats. Where are you? I need you. You can't. And listen, these circumstances, he lost four businesses in one day. A textile business with his sheep, a local delivery business with his donkeys, a, a, a international delivery business with his camel, camels, and then a, 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 a 
raising cattle for, for either beef or so that they could be plow animals, tractor trailers, if you will, tractors for the field. He lost it all in one day. And then he lost all his kids in one day. Have you had a bad day like that? I mean, you, that just doesn't, that doesn't happen very often. Yet, we, when we have a little bit of trouble, I'm not trying to minimize your problems, but they surely weren't Job's. When we have a little bit of trouble, we start complaining and wondering, where is God? And we, like, we, we become like impetulant two-year-olds. We forget everything that he's done for us. And we confine everything that's happening right now to the only reality by which we need to judge him. Like it's, it's proper to judge him. And then we make all kind of assertions regarding his character and whether he's really with us or not. Or whether he cares about us based on the difficulty through which we're presently going. Forgetting everything about his faithfulness from yesterday. Shame on us. And Job lost everything. Is that the Lord given? The Lord taken away. Bless him. He can be my pastor any day. Because you have a pastor. You have a church. You have believers. You have a Bible. And you can get that Bible in any form you want. You can get it talking to you on your phone through audio files. You can read it if you will read your Bible every day. You can get it on the radio. You can have people preach it to you. You can get CDs of it. Sam Jackson will preach the Bible to you. I guess like, really, really, really. You can get it however you want. You got more information in one day that Job had in his entire life. And he responds like this. And then, as if it wasn't bad enough, the, the devil asks for permission to, to get his body. God says, okay. And all of a sudden, boils and tumors and all kind of stuff begin to appear. And he, he, his, his flesh turns strangely white. And, and his wife finally, his, his, his only confidant, his best friend, the, the person with whom he's been for probably 200 years, because they lived a long time back then, says, it'd be better if you just curse God and die. Job says, I want you to know, if, if God decides to kill me, I will praise him. Amen. Now, that's high-level living. That's high-level living in God. Make it a point. Job did not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing, which, which most of us have, have rehearsed over and again. Amen. We've been there so many times we can't count. You didn't do me right. And as a result, I'm not going to the men's meeting. I'm not going to, 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 to small group. I'm not going to church. No, 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 uh-uh. This, this isn't the way life ought to be. Job didn't accuse God. You know what Job's sin was? He didn't think he deserved it. Now, he may not have deserved those things, but he was thinking he was more righteous than he really was. And so after his friends who accuse him regularly by coming to him and saying, nobody gets the stuff that you get happening to you unless you really did something, so fess up. 
fess up. What did you do? He says, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything. In fact, I don't know why the Almighty is treating me like this. I'm a good guy. I'm a wonderful person. I'm the best version of people that you've ever met. He was praising himself regularly, bragging about his accomplishments. And then all of a sudden, God shows up after he's got three friends that say the wrong thing, one who rebukes the other three and Job. And then God shows up in chapter 38 and says, may I speak, please? And God begins to talk to him. It says, where were you when I did this? How can you begin to... Now listen, it's two chapters in. In chapter 40, Job says this. You know, uh, I hear you, and I, there's really nothing I can say to what you're saying. I, 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 I've spoken once. I won't speak again. I'm really sorry. I get you. God says, I'm not done. And he goes on reproving him for another two chapters. The longest rebuke any person has ever got in history. I amplified Job's right living and amazing integrity to show how God thinks differently about our lives than we do. And that we would have thought, oh, on balance, this dude is amazing. God says, you deserve four chapters of rebuke. Live your life in such a way that you don't deserve one. The disciples were not in a place of being able to incorporate their faith with their reality. And they had shut the door to the possibility of what Jesus said might be true. And they had shut in fear and insecurity and doubt. And then all of a sudden, Jesus makes a dynamic entrance. It says, and Jesus came. Now the word came there I'm not trying to be too pedantic in this, but it means he arrived. Though he may not have done what you wanted him to do when you wanted him to do it, he's on the way. And he may not, when he arrives, answer you like you want him to answer you, but please remember, it's going to be better than you ever thought because your expectations are too small. He's on the way. It says he arrived. He had planned this moment. He had planned this moment from the moment he got up. And the, 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 the women came to the tomb, and they realized, oh, our, our Jesus is alive. Now, Jesus could have gone to the disciples immediately, but he didn't. Why? He was giving them an opportunity to express their faith because these guys were going to be the leaders of the church. They were going to be the foundation for everything that everybody else would believe. They were going to have to have extraordinary faith. And he was giving them an opportunity to express that while they had not seen him. But they were missing the moment. God is trying to give you an opportunity to catapult to another spot by believing even though you do not see. Though your circumstances might be contrary, it's important for you to believe now rather than repenting later. Believe now that he's going to come because he's on his way. He is on his way. You got to trust him. And then it says he came and stood in their midst. That's standing. The word there doesn't mean he just showed up. It literally means that he was, was established in his stature. So when he stood in their midst, he was trying to let them know, I'm here to stay. 
Number one, I'm not an apparition. I'm not a ghost. As evidenced by the fact of what he says when they see him, because they think he's a ghost, because they reference him being dead. But generally, ghosts don't say what Jesus said, which is, peace be with you. Ghosts are trying to scare the mess out of you. They're trying to produce fear. Jesus is trying to produce peace. Peace be with you, because they are scared out of their minds. He just popped in the room. His corporal body, as we said before, was uninhibited by matter. And he just, whoo, he's there. And they're thinking, how did that happen? The door was locked. Oh, my goodness. It's, no, it's a ghost. Ah! Peace. Or chill. <laughs> chill, chill. It's me. It's me. It's me. And they were all just, oh. There's something about whatever God does that brings peace to your life. He's always trying to bring peace. Even when conflict might be raging, he's trying to bring peace. Now, everything he's doing is building to a moment. He's trying to build one foundation stone of faith and evidence so that the disciples can receive that which he is intending to give. So his arrival... His stature. Next, he begins to have demonstration of the resurrection. Notice my hands. See my side? These things allow them to know that ghosts don't have marks like this. Only bodies that have been pierced do. And so he shows them his hands and he shows them his side. And, and these things allow them to understand that he is real and that redemption has come to them that he actually bled and died for them and that the worst that the world could throw at him he defeated in one second revelation was filling their minds and their heart it was an amazing moment an enormous moment for them to try to grasp all the information and what this really meant who, ri who rises from the dead on their own how did this who is what is, he's bigger than we thought. I thought he was this, I thought, but he's, he's more than that. What does that mean for, he's alive. Oh my goodness. And you can imagine the, the kinds of things. And it says they began to rejoice, but they didn't even know how to praise him, right? So again, he says, chill. You have to really praise him for him to say stop. It has to be some kind of praise. It's got to be some wild, outlandish, out-of-the-box kind of praise. It said they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. He had to say, stop. Whatever we've done this morning didn't approximate that. Didn't approximate that. I encourage you at some point, not necessarily on a Sunday morning when we're here, to do what you can to praise him so well that he has to say, slow down, slow down. Why? Because it wasn't just about glorying in what he did. Jesus was, was wanting to do something else. He wasn't done. The reason he rose, beyond the fact that there was nothing else he could do because he had never sinned and death could not hold him, the reason he rose was for us. To get us back from the enemy. To, to 
purchase us and reclaim us and to let us know that we are free and no longer bound as a slave to sin, that he defeated sin. He put it in the grave and left it there and came back up. He became our sin and he took our whooping so that we didn't have to be rejected by God. We were now included in the beloved, not excluded. He was trying to make sure he got to this point so he couldn't have just a breakout praise moment because he came to do something. And whenever we have a moment in God where we feel really happy about what he's done, please feel happy. But remember, he's always come to do something. And this is where we get to the deployment. He said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now, the interesting thing about this comment is that after he said this, roughly 10 days later, he said, don't go anyplace. So this wasn't their sending moment. This was their information moment. Because remember, they were occupationally stunted. What do we do now? I mean, he's not going to be, he's not going to sit on a natural throne. We're not going to be administrators of his kingdom. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. What do we do now? They were occupationally thwarted. They didn't know what to do next. He was trying to help them. Remember, these are men. Men like to work. (laughs) That was a natural way for, at that point, men should have said, that's right. I'm not even asking you to be religious. You just say, that's right. That's right. Men like to work. That's what we do. We work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are supposed to enjoy work so well that it's hard for us to distinguish between what we do and who we are. It's hard. When a woman loses her job, it's bad. But very rarely does she begin to reflect on her own identity. She just starts looking in the paper, goes on the Internet, signs up with Monster. I need a new job. She doesn't begin to reflect and say, I'm worthless. I'm nothing. I'll never be anything. When a man loses his job, women get scared when their men lose their job. (laughs) When a woman loses a job, a man doesn't get scared. When a man loses his job, the woman gets scared. Oh, my goodness. Oh, uh, what do I do? He's going to come home. Oh, God, what's going to happen today? Baby, listen, children, I'm going to put y'all down early. I, 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 I just, you, just, I'll pray with you. Daddy will talk to you tomorrow morning. It just it messes up all up. I, I mean, our souls. Why? Because God put Adam in the garden. He created him in the garden. And the next thing he told him to do, work. And so it's so closely tied, it's hard for us to separate what we do from who we are. Now, we need to, and we should not take any of our identity from what we do, but only find it in God. But what we do supports what we find in God. And so Jesus understood, these are men I'm talking to, who are lost occupationally. They don't know what next looks like. I want you to know, you're still a part of my plan. As I was sent, think how... Go ahead, rewind in your mind. How was I sent? You see what I did? You see what the Father did through me? That's how I am sending you. Amen. Oh, you, 
you're going to make us ministers like you? I thought that short-term mission trip was just a moment. When he sent out the 70, I thought, you know, hey, that's just good. But I thought, but you, your plan is, you want us to, we're supposed to carry on. Oh, and all of a sudden, now they had hope. They had hope that tomorrow can, can be different than today. And then secondly, he then says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus was building a foundation on which these men could begin to construct what it was like to receive something from God that they never had. It says that he breathed on them. Now, Jesus could use any kind of imagery he desired, but he chose to use... Why? Because this was a seminal moment for the church and for all of humanity. Do you remember we talked about this three or four weeks ago? When God created Adam, made him from the dust of the earth. And what did he do next? <sighs> Into him the breath of life. That was not oxygen. It wasn't oxygen. It wasn't God's exhale because God doesn't inhale. He's not dependent upon our atmosphere to exist. He's outside of it. What was he breathing into Adam? Himself. And this is what, what distinguished Adam from the rest of his creation and that he had the image of God in him. Jesus was using that kind of imagery to try to convey what he was doing. What God did in the beginning was a creation. This is a new creation. This is starting all over. Humanity has been subject to death all of its existence since Adam. It stops here. I'm going to rebirth you by the Spirit of Almighty God. When you receive the Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Spirit, something is going to become regenerated in your soul. You are not going to be the same human being. There is nothing about bread that is the same from when I, I grew up, before I knew Jesus. There is nothing. So much so, that my family members want to follow me. Those are the people who, who don't want to follow you the most because they know you. My sister calls me her pastor. My brother looks at me as his pastor, and I beat them both up. <laughs> I was the eldest. I beat them both up. Sorry, I repent. I, <laughs> sorry, I forgot to say that part. Forgive me, I'm sorry, I repent, yeah. Took a little bit too much pride in what I... I <laughs> I am so different. I am so different. I'm not just an upgraded version of my old self. I'm not a, I'm, 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 I didn't get just a, a, a better version of Brett. Brett died. Now, I am the best version of Brett you have ever seen, but I am not the same guy I was. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, 
It changes you forever. Now, it's not just a one-time reception. The born-again experience, that becoming brand new is a one-time. But we need to desire him daily. Holy Spirit, come into my life so I can be relevant to the people around me, so I can help folk, so I can be what I need to be. I, I, I can't be what I need to be without you. I need close fellowship with you today. I'm not depending on everything being right simply because I made a decision 35 years ago that was great. I need you fresh today. Oh, God, I need you. I need you. I need you. Somebody came to me and said, oh, you just use God as a crutch. I said, no, I don't. I use him as my heart and lung machine. It's much more dependent than that. Because if I'm using him as a crutch, I only need his assistance every other step. I need him to breathe. I need him to live. I can't make a good decision without him. Unapologetically, completely dependent on him. Completely, completely. And this is what it means, receive the Holy Spirit. Because, gentlemen, you can't do anything that I want you to do. You can't be anything that I want you to be unless you get him. This is a brand new day for you. Begin to live the Spirit-filled life. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. Let's pray.